Welcome to The Pursuit of Purpose, a podcast made possible by Skylife Success, a SkyPass group company. Join Krish Dunham, an author and speaker whose messaging has been described as the junction where God's ability and man's availability meet hope's accessibility. Greetings, dear ones, and uh, welcome to another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose. Sorry for the lengthy hiatus. Almost a week and plus. I was traveling to South Africa. It's a long way to go to get here. And today we begin the arduous journey back. The good Lord willing, we'll be back in our saddle in Texas on Friday morning. Many things have happened since we have last connected. And I want to bridge the gap of a few of the issues that plague our time. Those of you who are listening to this as I post this, maybe just waking up to a new day in the U.S. or maybe at the end of your day in other parts of the world as I am midday in Johannesburg. Last week uh, we arrived in Johannesburg and then I had the privilege and obviously the honor to visit the Apartheid Museum and then traipse through Soweto where the uprisings took place in the middle 70s in retaliation against the language that was being imposed as a medium of instruction. In Soweto, you get to see the house of Nelson Mandela and down the street, the house where Desmond Tutu, Archbishop Desmond Tutu lived. It is said to be the only street which houses two Nobel laureates, so that is pretty cool unto itself. One of the interesting things of my own journey of having moved from the East to the West is to look at this whole concept of prejudice through the lens of a bystander who falls in between. Historically, the fight of black and white, whether it was because of the civil rights in the U.S. or the race riots elsewhere or the apartheid rule in South Africa, always had as bystanders other colors that were either marginalized peripherally or in some ways totally. Now, when I arrived in the United States and I heard the plight of people who had been marginalized, I thought to myself, they must, uh, their history must be understood uh, and we need to require and understand context. So I've always stayed as a peripheral bystander by making sure that we understood the anthropological behavior of generations. Obviously, I am now in the country of Africa. I have been here, I mean, the continent of Africa, and I've been here many times with with trips to Egypt and Zimbabwe and Kenya and now South Africa with upcoming trips, hopefully, to other parts in the interior. And I always tell people, until you come here and see the context of what exactly happens, you'll you'll, you'll, you'll be one sided in your wants, your desires and your hopes, wherever in the world you are. Now, Africa throws a very different contrast to the whole concept of who is marginalized. During the 50 years or so of apartheid, when they decided that uh, the white uh, rule would dominate the country, the larger percentages of the population were people of other colors, which means it's quite fascinating to realize that in other parts where people were subjugated, they may have been a minority and were treated horribly because a majority held an opinion. But here the reverse was true and it was quite fascinating because after the British left, 
The British were the ones who brought on their ships uh, in the middle 1800s to work the sugarcane plantations, people from other colonies that they had conquered or that they ruled, India being the crown jewel of the British Raj. So I was dealing primarily with people of Indian origin who have been here now four, four and a half generations, but most of them were relegated to the town of Phoenix and the city of Durban, which they say at one time hosted the largest Indian congregation or um, Indian group of people outside the Indian subcontinent. Hope I made myself clear there. But uh, as I was working with these people and talking to them, I realized that these people are four generations removed, which means the first generation came and did what they were told. The second generation or the first generation towards the end of their workload were given an option to get a small piece of land in exchange for their return ticket so they could continue working. Some chose to stay, some went back. By the time you get to the second generation, the people who had now found a new frontier had begun to educate them in some way. By the third generation, very few people were living in their original farm homes. They had already moved to cities. And by fourth generation, you see a populace thriving, driving good cars, living in good houses, and pastoring flourishing churches. So I just wanted to give you that comparison and contrast because as you walk through that apartheid museum, you see that the Indians also were given the same treatment. Now, in terms of the color of your skin and the angst that someone evokes to it in a racial way, I don't know if the tinge of the skin makes a difference, but I'm pretty sure it did where some people were more marginalized than others. But as I asked about it, they said, okay, there were sections of the South Africa that were earmarked for the people who were black, and that was the Soweto area. Phoenix area was earmarked for the people of Indian origin. And then they had another category called colored, which incidentally in their mind meant mixed. And I think in India, we had a category like that called Anglo-Indian, which means these people were people who had relations with the British when they lived in India. Whatever promises were made when the British left, these people were left in India and they were half British and half Indian. So they were called Anglo-Indians and they had their small communities in pockets of Bombay and uh, coastal areas where the British had more of a dominance or at least had more of a transient population. Now, you have to study history to understand a lot of the context of what I'm giving, but I want to give you three moods on this path to productivity. The first mood is dignity in the decision. So whatever decision I've seen people made, they have lived with it in the sense that if it was an uprising, it cost a man 27 years of his freedom and he was jailed in Robbins Island. And of course, Nelson Mandela is widely regarded as the father of this nation. When you look across in Durban, uh, Nelson Mandela is supposed to have given a gentleman by the name of Danny who passed away and whose funeral was while I was here, who was a humanitarian worker, was a civil rights champion, kept a low profile, but uh, Nelson Mandela recognized him and gave, they said, a percentage of his Nobel Prize winnings to this man of Indian origin. So the struggle here was universal. No matter where you came from, you formed that universal struggle because you were actually a majority in terms of numbers. And uh, so the first is the dignity in decision. When you make the decision, why do you make it? Once you make the decision, do you live by it? Who are the people who benefit from it? Are you the one who is going to be a benefactor of it? Or will your work and your lore be something that is relegated to the annals of museums and the halls of civic societies where 
lengthy proclamations are read to your life and legacy. I met very many people who are now in their 70s and 80s, which means they lived through the brunt of this. These are people who were born in the early 50s or the late 40s when this process began. These are people who were look at me with tears in their eyes and says, you know, my ancestors came from India and my home is on the is on the coast with the Indian Ocean. But there was a sign that says Indians, blacks and colors not allowed. And uh, so there was a time then when the uprising took place, the Indians are now clubbed with the others. And so what happens is it's a fascinating journey to see dignity through decision when the lens is sometimes tinted. And I'm, of course, a person who lives in the West, have lived there a majority of my life, and I came from the East. I lived there for the first 24 years of my life. And I saw what people go through when they feel disenfranchised, when they feel marginalized. But in every pocket around the world, I've seen people thrive amidst the same circumstance that someone else goes through. So I met people who during the height of that place uh, actually managed to get their advanced degrees, uh, become teachers of repute. And as soon as systems changed, they were the ones lauded as the liberators and became heroes in the new world. Um, So the first is dignity and decision. The second is a desire to demand. And that demand may be both from the external and the internal. I saw people who said, you know, we demanded our right because we were brought here without any rhyme or reason. Now, if you equate it to what happened in the United States and the early ships that went there, they may have been a 100, 150 year or possibly a 200 year difference. But the first Indians came here in the middle 1800s. The rest of the people who came here were people who came by way of colonization of Britain. And as the colonization of Britain took place, uh, the countries that uh, started uh, having treaties with Britain or the countries that were defeated by others in wars began to cede their responsibility. The Dutch had a very great influence in South Africa, as you see by the names of some of their descendants. But, uh, you know, after the after after independence and all of the things that happened after they got the independence from Britain, when we went through that state, It was a very fascinating journey to see what people can do when they are given absolute power. Now, the absolute power here was actually not only demeaning, but it was demonstrably false. The very narrative that there was something superior about someone versus the other is what makes your skin crawl when you go through these museums. No, I am not a person who has ever claimed a minority status when I have lived in the West. I've always tried to integrate and do all of that. And I've taken a flack from a lot of people who say that, you know, you're a quasi sellout. You don't be, you know, just because you had a few white friends or just because you uh, were mentored by a man who was quite famous, uh, you know, you dodge the bullet. They may be right in every aspect of that, but I hearken back to what my father, who worked for the Americans who lived in India, used to tell me. He said, son, wherever you go, learn more about those people than they know about themselves. And when you take take them back into the annals of their own history and peel back the veneer, you will see a goodness that existed before the evil that now perpetrates or flows through them. And you give them a glimpse of what happened before they became what they are. They may realize that, okay, this was in error. It's a long shot, but it's the only shot worth trying. 
So sometimes we have to go past the scars and ask ourselves why the wounds were created in the first place. Many people claim disenfranchisement, many people claim victimhood, but who are not really truly victims. Generations ago, their people may have suffered, but what you do is if you continue to create that. And that's one thing I saw within the Indian community. There are still some who feel marginalized, but a majority of them seem to have moved on. Majority of them seem to have now clung to the hope that, okay, the past is the past. We're not going to let it beat us. We're going to let it teach us. A majority of them now have made this decision, this uh, decision to demand from themselves something that is good, clean, pure, powerful, and positive. A decision that makes them look into the interior of their soul and say, am I going to train myself for yesterday constantly and be dragged back into that which was horrible, awful, evil, and catastrophic? Now, when you go into Germany, the same thing. I mean, there was a period in time where every German walked around on eggshells because of what other people had done in the name of their faith, in the name of their race, in the name of their nationality. But not every one of them was a bad person. You have to realize when orders are passed down from above and the alternative is a jail cell, many well-meaning people participated in atrocities. Now, some did it gleefully and they were, they were woefully ignorant and totally evil as we saw in the Eichmann trial and the Nuremberg trials uh, as it pertained to Nazi Germany. The same thing would exist in every society. If you go to Alabama, you'll see some people who gleefully participated in those things that were horrible when you looked at the image and saw man treating man in a way that you would not treat a dog. But if you fast forward to where we are today, we are at a very cusp of some increasingly hostile things that are taking place, which is the third thing. If the first is dignity and the second is demand, the third is what I call the distraction. And the distraction is what is plaguing the new South Africa. The distraction is plaguing the new America. There are alternative lifestyles. There are identity issues that are being portrayed. There are morality being trampled and laws being written based on feelings and not on facts. So granted, we have, a, we have equated horror and evil to the bad morals of a group of people. And now having jettisoned those morals and jettisoned the gods that they worshiped, we have now fast forwarded and gone right past basic morality and decency to a new world of feeling where the man who is liberated is now considering himself the liberator for all of humanity. This is a slippery slope because what we now see is no longer a care for what was, no longer a care for what is as a result of that past happenstance, but a very, very shaky future because the foundations are not even considered those that would come about because of disappointment or disenfranchisement. The new foundations are based on a future that is a distraction. A distraction which could cause a new kind of catastrophe because sometimes when you put your head down and work after you are brought in by a, on a ship, uh, these people may not have realized how long they were going to be here or how long they were going to be asked to work or how hot the sun was going to be. But they kept working because they had no choice. And one day when they woke up, they had a new master. But the irony is the same thing that is going on now. Most of us well-meaning good people who had no connection with any of the past, went to schools, colleges, and universities, are now waking up to a new master, a new master of total distraction, new master that parades ignorance, a new master that creates excuses for everything that is decent, wants to remove penalty for everything that is harsh, give immunity for everything that is villainous, 
and make sure in a such a way that the perpetrator is now hailed as the victim and the true victim is actually made into a person who is bigoted and not in tune. So these are my thoughts as I came through it. But the first is dignity in the situation. The second is demand from yourself and others. But the third and the most important one is the distraction that suddenly comes on the horizon and we realize that neither the past nor the present matters to those that are causing the distraction for a future they want you to be subjugated to. Until next time, this is your humble host, Chris Dunham. Sorry for the heady lecture, but this is what I thought about. Hope all is well. Good luck. God bless. And that concludes another episode of The Pursuit of Purpose with Krish Dunham brought to you by Skylife Success. Please subscribe, rate, and visit us on the web at krishdunham.com and skylifesuccess.com where you can find our social media links and access to additional resources. Till next time, happy learning and happy living.